Welcome to Midweek Liberty. I'm Jay Dillon Proctor. And I'm Anthony Alegria. And this is a product of Kingdom of the Logos, and I hope you enjoy our program tonight. We're going to be discussing suffering and personal responsibility, as well as examining some of the logic and writings of G.K. Chesterton. Last week, we discussed Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning. Tonight, we're going to be expanding our minds a little bit with the idea of sophistry. That's a peculiar word. You may or may not have heard that before. We're going to be explaining what that word means and why it's relevant to our culture around us. But as we go to examine G.K. Chesterton tonight, I would just like to go ahead and and say he is a a Catholic writer. If anyone is ever looking for some fun material that's, that's out there regarding to various Christian theology as well as just some really fun writings, G.K. Chesterton has a lot of very fun to read material. His illustrations are great. It's a very fluid writer, and that's who we're going to be examining tonight. Uh, just as a disclaimer, the purpose of this week is not to convince people they are suffering. Right, and what we're really looking to do tonight is con- to convey a message where people are called to be responsible, personally responsible, for truth. This is something which, in our society, people have really moved away. They, they're much more obsessed with other things, such as power, authority, and oppression, than they are with truth in the world around us. In the past, we've defined that truth is that which is reliable. It's so important to articulate, if we go back to the Greek language, if we go back to the language of the New Testament, to some of the ancient voices in our world, the word truth is unmistakably a term which means reliable. Do you think personal responsibility has been demonized in our own society? Yeah, it really has. The reason why we're talking about this is twofold. One, one of the, the listeners we have last week had requested that we talk more about suffering this week. They enjoyed some of the material we examined in Viktor Frankl. And to that point, if anyone listening to this, we, we greatly appreciate those in our audience. If you have any topic you'd like us to discuss or to further articulate any ideas, please send us a message. Please contact us in some format, and we'll do our best to accommodate. But aside from the fact that truth has been really blurred in our world, we have a lot of people who are really convinced in selling identity politics. And if you are going to sell identity politics, you have to teach people that their life is determined by the group that they belong to. You have to remove the role of the individual and elevate the role of the group. That's the only way that you can really sell identity politics is if you you really convince people that their, their whole existence is determined by what group they're in. The way that that group is treated determines how the individual lives. So the idea of free will and personal responsibility, these are things which are, are just cataclysmically antagonistic to the idea of identity politics. Identity politics is almost completely wrapped up in sort of this idea that your, your life is determined by your group. And in order to, to sell that, you have to, to rip out of people's mindset that free will is a thing. You have to rip out the idea that personal respo- responsibility is viable. We've got a lot of stuff going on in our world right now. There's been this huge, massive spiral going on in Hollywood where the culture has really been exposed for what it is. There's a lot of corruption there. People are just more interested in in self-pleasure than they are being virtuous, which is so interesting because so many of the Hollywood figures want to go out and and get on television. They want to go on interviews and act like they're these moral arbiters of of virtue in our society when they're really not. They're extremely corrupt, and, and everybody has been able to see it for what it is. But also, there's really no personal responsibility in Hollywood and in that culture. And this is something which is a huge problem. Because if the the icons of pop culture have no personal responsibility, it's going to be difficult for the the common person to to really have good role models for that. And we as a society, we need positive role models which can teach us personal responsibility. In the past, people have looked to things like professional sports, professional athletes, professional thinkers, 
for stuff. And with what we've seen going on recently with the NFL, we see people who are way more interested in a political statement than they are in just the truth of the matter. You know, always a good honesty test for intellectual honesty and intellectual sufficiency is, are you more concerned with the truth or just have you been sold on an idea and you want to spread that idea as much as possible and, and quench the, the other voices in the room just to, to, to squash them away? It's, it's a great test for motive to see how receptive people are to the truth because a lot of these arguments, whether you look at the stuff going on in the NFL, you look at some of the very pop culture things centered around identity politics, uh, around the idea of privilege and oppression, they're not so much rooted in fact as they are in emotion. And it's a very manipulative thing. And if we want freedom in our world, we're going to have to get back to being interested in truth. We're going to have to get back to the interest and in personal responsibility and we're going to have to be able to identify certain manipulative things out there, such as the idea of sophistry. Now, that's a weird word. It's one of the things we're going to talk about tonight is this idea of sophistry, and that's spelled S-O-P-H-I-S-T-R-Y. If you've ever heard that word, you may recognize the root there in some other words. But sophistry is something we're going to be talking about here in our next segment. So we'll get to that here in a moment. Alright, so the next thing we're going to talk about tonight is sophistry. This is a really important concept in our world. It's a really peculiar concept. It's a word that you may not hear very often in reality. And to be honest, it's not one that I've heard a lot, even though it's really been popping up a lot here recently. But it's the idea that you can mask really bad ideas with fancy words. You can sell things with fancy words, you can elevate the importance of words, to, to mask bad ideas, to mask the, the facts of reality. You can manipulate people's perceptions. You can effectively lie just by using fancy words. You can, you can mask the truth. Earlier I stated that we're going to be examining G.K. Chesterton a little bit this evening. In G.K. Chesterton's book, Orthodoxy, which is free on Amazon. You can find it a lot of other places. It's a public domain text now. He, he makes the statement that mere light sophistry is the thing I happen to despise the most of all things. In other words, he, he hated the idea of people using fancy words, of using rhetoric to manipulate the truth. If something which was going on during the, the time of his writings, G.K. Chesterton come from the, the late 1800s going into the pre-World War I era and then all the way up to the time before World War II. He passed away in the 1930s, but during his writing, he realized that there were so many people in our world, particularly in the the whole movement coming out of, of the Marxist way of thinking, that were manipulating populations. They were manipulating a lot of cultures in Europe by using fancy words to really twist reality. And it was one of the things that a lot of people tried to accuse him of, which again, the best thing to, way to cover up your own actions is to accuse someone else at it before they get to the, to the punch. So it's something that he highly despised because he realized how vicious it was. The sophistry really is this, this thing where we can mask bad ideas with using fancy words. We can mask fallacies by, by using pretty words. And it's the way that people make proposals and arguments in our culture by using really high language to mask deceptive or, or malicious or mistaken information. So here are some samples of sophistry that you may be familiar with. Ernest, here recently in our media. We've seen a lot of stuff talk about the protesting. We see a lot of stuff talking about just the general tension we've had in our culture. And of course, a lot of people are familiar with Antifa 
if you listen to anything that's not cable or, or TV news, you've probably heard a lot about Antifa. And one of the things that's been going on with Antifa is there have been a lot of people who have tried to apologize for them. They've tried to sweep this under the rug. And one of the common ways that people have tried to, to minimize the, the reality of who Antifa is, is they've said, their name is anti-fascist. That means they are against fascism. Therefore, they're definitionally not the bad guys. They hate Nazis. They hate people who are, you know, insert group term here, and that's what you get. But the problem is, is this in and of itself is not a valid statement. Just because someone claims that they are against fascism doesn't mean that they're not fascists themselves. One of the great ironies we get is I'm not very sure that many people who use the, the language of fascism actually know what that means. I've found very few people in reality who can actually use that word appropriately, and much less the people who have been told that they're fighting fascism have no idea what it is. But this is something that is an example of sophistry, saying that because they're named this, then they must be this. You know, you can call stuff whatever it is. That doesn't mean that's what it actually is. That is sophistry. Another example of this is propaganda. When we see people putting together propaganda, we've seen this a lot in the Soviet Union. I know in the past we've looked at some propaganda stuff. We've had some images of that up. But propaganda is a form of sophistry. When you look to the, to the Lord of the Rings, I think one of the things that's really interesting is I heard a theory last week that the actual power of the ring in the series of the Lord of the Rings is that the, the ring is capable of of influencing people by sophistry. It whispers to the person who puts it on. They're sort of a manipulating language, or using language to manipulate the, the wearer. That's the true power. Another thing that's an example of sophistry that we've seen here in America in our re recent political thing is, is there's been a lot of politicians come out and say, oh, they're creating division over there. They hate women. They hate insert demographic here, and they, they list dividing people up while accusing the other side of, of dividing, that is by definition sophistry. You can't accuse somebody else of doing that what you're exactly doing. And even if you claim that you're doing it for a positive reason, you're still the one who is, who is segmenting people apart. Many of the things that we have in our, our culture that are really going around is this idea of oppression and privilege. And these things are heavily rooted in sophistry because they blur the lines on some really significant facts of reality. And we're going to get to that here in our next segment. In this next segment, we're going to be discussing suffering. Last week, we looked at Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning. He makes a really brilliant statement in there that suffering is like a gas that fills the volume of its container. It really doesn't matter how great the suffering we have in life is. It can consume us when we're in times of suffering. If you've got a, a toothache or a jaw ache, you know, that's going to really bother you and it's something you think about all the time. If you've lost a loved one or if you have a, a terrible illness or know someone or have a friend that, that has turned against you, all of these things can cause us to be consumed with suffering. This is a really important factor in our life. Suffering is so easy to consume us. Now, Viktor Frankl also goes on to suggest that we have to work through suffering. And that's really where we're going to be going tonight, is the discussion of how we work through suffering. But before we go too far, I want us to understand this idea of sophistry and how this is relevant in our modern culture and where we're at today. Because if we're going to work through suffering, we have to have a good understanding of suffering itself. We have to actually be self-aware and not just manipulated by the, the language of the day. So one of the things that we see really being blurred in our society is the difference between group guilt and individual responsibility. This is the problem where people are using the language of oppression and privilege to really manipulate other people. 
And it's something which works really well because everybody has some sort of suffering in their life. And if you can take that and blur the lines and say, well, that's responsible to a group, then obviously you, you've got a, a great piece of leverage over people. But at a minimum, this language of oppression and privilege is dishonest because it masks the difference between a group's role and an individual's role. The idea of oppression and privilege is much harder to sell to people if you have taught people that there's a, a great value in their own free will. If people have free will, then it's much harder to, to teach people that you're, you're existentially oppressed if, you're, if that idea of oppression is, is set completely in the fact that your, your oppression is determined by your demographic group. And this is something which is on its face. It's, it's sophistry. It's, it's manipulative. It's masking reality. It's masking the truth in our world and for the purpose of manipulating people. It often says a group did something and the individual does, did something and then and it's, it's a way of blurring the lines between the two. If a, so many times we see this in our, our cultures, this bait-and-switch tactic. They say, oh, this group has been oppressing this group. Or they say, in the past, this group did this. And therefore, they, they play bait-and-switch. They say, this happened, and now the switch is, now the in, individual in this modern area is guilty for it. It's, it's intellectually dishonest. It's really corrupt because its, its solution and its problem are completely detached, and they're on completely different terms. And we also see this in not just the sense of guilt, but we also see this in the sense of reward. In other words, this group of people has been lacking something, so we're going to give a certain reward to an individual even though they haven't had a life which merits such. And it's again, it's manipulative, and a lot of people are really sold on this, and especially if they're on the side that says we're giving you a reward, people are more than happy to take a reward for something they didn't personally deserve. And especially if they've been taught from the ground up that you know, personal responsibility, free will have nothing to do. It's all predetermined. This is this is something which is just bad all the way around. All right, so this is sophistry, the idea of masking reality using fancy words. It's a bait and switch tactic. It's it's really just corrupt. So this deception works really well because suffering is something which is just inherent in life. They can tell people that you're oppressed because the reality is is there is evidence of oppression. But that doesn't mean it's relevant evidence of oppression. For instance, you could be somebody whose hair started thinning as a teenager. That's real. There's evidence that if your hair starts thinning as a teenager, that's something that's real, and that can legitimately oppress you. You can be somebody who's extremely attractive, and that elevates you to society, and your friend cannot be of that same sort, and they don't get the same opportunities of you. Now, that's evidence that something really has happened. You could be somebody who's taller, and you have an advantage on a, a basketball team. You can be somebody who's shorter who has an advantage elsewhere. There are evidence everywhere that people are oppressed. They're oppressed by their own decisions. Sometimes we do things that, that cause pain for ourselves. And that's why this selling works so well, because everybody has something in life that's oppressing them. But the thing is, it's just because there's something in life which causes suffering or oppression, that doesn't mean that another group is responsible for it. That doesn't mean if you place the group out there, somewhere in the ether, some other aggregation of people, if you place responsibility on them for your suffering, that doesn't mean that it's going to fix the problem. In order for us to fix problems, we have to, one, be self-aware. We have to realize that suffering is inherent. We can't let people exploit our suffering. But we have to be people who are going to take personal responsibility in pursuing the truth. These, these games are really not new. The idea that the group you belong to will determine who you are is nothing new to this world. The idea that people would prey on people's ideas to, to manipulate them. None of this is new. But this is where really the role of the church has been throughout time to liberate people from determinism, to liberate people from group politics. Again, the stuff like the social justice warriors, the stuff like the, the oppression Olympics, 
All of this stuff is not new, even though it may take a new medium, it may take new language. But the idea of, of using language to manipulate people is by no stretch of the imagination new. And I want us to take a few moments to look at something in John chapter 3, where we see Jesus offering something which is unmistakably a moment of great liberty for the individual. So, Anthony, if, I know you've got pulled up. Will you read for us John 3? Here Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and a spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. All right, and that's John chapter 3, verse 5, by the way. I left the, the verse out a second ago. And I think as we read this verse, this is obviously the language where Christians talk about being born again. But it's also an area where I feel like the church has really messed things up because we've over-categorized this. And this is an era, 50 years ago I may have said something different, but in 2017, the era we're living in, we need to stop over-categorizing things out because what we're doing is we're, we're giving people a justification for not being well-developed people. When we segment out the different things of life, it's a, a way for people justifying, well, oh, I'm, I'm doing well in this area, so I'm not going to deal with all this stuff. It's, it's junk. We need to get back to having well-rounded, holistically good people. And it starts with having a holistically well-rounded theology. As we come to this text, obviously there's the language of being born of the Spirit, and I think that language of being born of the Spirit has been our justification for saying this is purely a spiritual matter. There's a new spiritual birth. And we haven't really developed what that means as well as we haven't developed what it means to, to not being just born of the flesh. The idea that your group, which you belong to, your demographic, whether you're a man or a woman, what skin color you have, determines who you are, that is what birth of the flesh sort of looks like. Jesus is saying the fleshly birth, in other words, your material circumstances of the world, are no longer what is going to define you. It's your birth in the spirit. In other words, your mind, your heart, the things which are not touchable, the things which cannot easily be, be touched in this world, the things which cannot easily be maneuvered, are the areas where it's going to really shape who you are. Your free will, the medium of your free will, is going to be where your identity is. This is a very important thing, and it's very liberating. But it also brings with it a lot of personal responsibility. Because you can't just say, well, I'm born in this tribe in the ancient world, therefore I'm closer to God, or I'm born into a Samaritan, therefore I don't go to the temple, I don't have to worry about a relationship with God. Jesus picks all that up and throws it out the window. This idea of group identities is thrown out the window by this text. The idea of identities being determined for your whole life goal and no personal responsibility thrown out the window. This text demands that we have personal responsibility using our free will after we are born of the Spirit. And we see that logic permeating through the Gospel of John, that there is some onerous responsibility placed on the disciple to go out and function. We don't so much just see that here within these few verses in, in the John chapter 3, but when we look at the Gospel of whole, there's this idea that you have personal responsibility when you come into the kingdom. I really think we've messed up by over-segmenting things out, and this is an area where it's important that people are not just born of the flesh, not just born of some random group identity, but they're born again, and they have a new freedom in that. So one of the things that I think is important regarding personal responsibility is some of the elements we get from G.K. Chesterton. Earlier I mentioned G.K. Chesterton's book on orthodoxy, but he's also known for writing a lot of short stories. He had a lot of just various writings that he did, and one of the, the famous short stories he had is the, the writings of Father Brown. He, this is a sort of a collection of short stories. It's been translated into a lot of different mediums. Uh, there's a, currently a BBC production version of, of Father Brown out there. They're very good, but one of the things about Father Brown that is so interesting is that it's sort of like the traditional locked room mystery where there's a plot that everybody has to, to solve who it is with a fixed number of 
suspects. But what is so unique about Father Brown is it has an extra element involved in the plot. And the thing that is extra in this is that justice is not just when the bad guy is caught. Justice can only occur when the people involved in the crime take personal responsibility in the crime. This is really fascinating because it's this idea that both the victim and the perpetrator have to take responsibility for things. If the person has gone out and committed a crime, Father Brown, he always wants a confession out of them. The confession, which again, Father Brown is a, obviously he's a Catholic priest, is much more interested in, in getting the confession out of something, getting the person to acknowledge their, the things that they have done which are wrong, and to honestly acknowledge it. It's not just something where he says, if I can just get you to make a hollow statement about this, it's all good. He demands that people own the responsibility of their actions. Likewise, the people who are victims, he says, you really must recognize the suffering you have around you. You must take responsibility in this to work through it, even if you're not the person who caused it. There's something about that says we must take responsibility in suffering. Taking responsibility for suffering doesn't mean that we are confessing guilt in a situation, although that may be needed in many cases. Instead, it simply means that we are accepting the challenge to try and fix the situation. Yes, and that's a very important, very important point. And we're going to pick up on free will and suffering here in just a few. So we can only address suffering if we're in a world with free will. We can only have personal responsibility if we're in a world with free will. If, if there is no free will, if everything's determined from outside factors, then we don't have to worry about suffering because we're not going to be able to do anything about it. But of course, as we know, this is just not very good ways of thinking. It doesn't really hold up to scrutiny very well. So here's some things I want you to think about regarding suffering, which again, I realize not everybody listening to this may have suffering just overwhelming them in their life. And if that's the case, be thankful, be very, very blessed at this. But for the moments in life when we do have suffering, we can only address the suffering if we take the responsibility to deal with it in the real world. If we leave the suffering in our mind, then of course it's just something which is rather fantastic. It's a fantasy. It's not something which is taking place in the, the real world around us. It's sort of like a dream. It's an idea. It's a, a daydream. It can't just be left in the mind because then it will be a fantasy. If we place responsibility for suffering on another person and we just leave that responsibility in our mind, we, we're convinced that another person is guilty, but we never go out and deal with this. If we never address the situation in reality, it's still staying a fantasy in our mind. If we attribute suffering to a group, which again, it's worth noting, people are not groups, people are individuals. If we place suffering on a group, if we're, we take the debate of what our pop culture says and say suffering is caused by some demographic group, that is a fantasy. Groups are not the same thing as individuals. Groups are outside of us. None of us are more than one person. Well, at least I hope so. If you are more than one person, please do find a counselor or somebody who can help you with that. Or find a pastor because there's something needed. We, we either need to do therapy, we need to do some sort of counseling, or possibly even exorcism is needed. Because people are not more than one person. People are individuals. And whenever we say that we're going to imagine suffering to be caused by a group, which there are times where mobs do things which are, are, are bad, but at the same time, we need to hold those individuals accountable, not this hypothetical group. That, that group is made up of real, solid, flesh-and-blood individuals. 
Individuals have to take responsibility. Groups should not be what takes responsibility. Groups are hypothetical. People are not hypothetical. People are real. People are not abstractions. People are material, flesh, and blood. If we're to overcome suffering in our world, if we're going to do as, as G.K. Chesterton suggests and, and take the ownership and take the personal responsibility in suffering, it cannot stay a fantasy. We have to take charge of it. We have to overcome it. We must conquer suffering. As Viktor Frankl says, this is where we find meaning in life. When we go to moments of suffering and we say we're going to work through it, we're going to overcome the suffering. But in order for us to do this, we must deal with the suffering in the real world. This is where taking responsibility comes into play. And in order for responsibility to be there, there also must be free will. So we're going to read a little bit out of G.K. Chesterton. And we've got a photo there you can see of him. And last week we, we read Man's Search for Meeting, but today we're going to be reading a little bit out of Chesterton's book, Orthodoxy. When I was engaged in controversy with the Clarion on the matter of free will, that able writer Mr. R.B. Southers said that free will was lunacy because it meant causeless actions and the actions of a lunatic would be causeless. I do not dwell here upon the disastrous lapse in determinist logic. Right. Obviously, we if any actions, even a lunatic's, can be causeless, determinism is done for. If the chain of causation can be broken for a madman, it can be broken for a man. All right, very good, very good. I thought we had, were going to stop a little bit earlier than that, but that's, that's good. So the opposite of free will is this idea of determinism. And now, to our to really articulate the conversation of free will, Chesterton goes to the idea of the lunatic. And if you can break the mode of causality with, with the lunatic, you can sort of break the idea of causality everywhere. But essentially what, what Chesterton is arguing is that the opposite of the idea of free will is the idea of determinism. This sort of groupthink, you're determined by environment, that's the opposite of free will. It was natural that perhaps a modern Marxian socialist should not know anything about free will. But it was certainly remarkable that a modern Marxian socialist should not know anything about lunatics. The last thing that can be said of a lunatic is that his actions are causeless. If any human acts may loosely be called causeless, they are the minor acts of a healthy man, whistling as he walks, slashing the grass with a stick, kicking his heels or rubbing his hands. It is the happy man who does the useless things. The sick man is not strong enough to be idle. Okay, this is really wonderful logic. Again, Chesterton is so fun to read. Chesterton makes the argument that if you want proof of causeless actions, you don't look to a lunatic, you look to the sane person. A healthy man is, is capable of being idle. A healthy man can set your coffee on a table without concern with where it's at. You know, it, it doesn't matter if it's two inches away from the edge, if it's five feet from the couch. Whereas the lunatic will be hypersensitive to all these things. You don't want to set the, the mug on the table right where the, the bugs may be or something like that. There's a hypersensitivity to things, and the, the lunatic cannot afford to be idle. It's very wonderful thinking, very wonderful thinking. It is exactly such careless and causeless actions that a madman could never understand. For the madman, like the determinist, generally sees too much cause in everything. The madman would read a conspiratorial significance into those empty activities. He would think th that the lopping of the grass was an attack on private property. He would think that the kicking of the heels was a signal to an accomplice. If the madman could for an instant become careless, he would become sane. Everyone who has had the misfortune to talk with people 
in the heart or on the edge of mental disorder knows their most sinister quality is a horrible clarity of detail. This is just awesome. The idea that people, when they have this hyper sensitivity of the world around them, they become conspiratorial. They see everything. They see patterns that aren't there. They, they see patterns which are rooted in, in some sort of interpretation of the world, but that doesn't mean that they have as much weight as what's really going on in reality. And we look at this and we can see people who are just like this in our world. They look everywhere. They see oppression. They see privilege. Just like the, the madman can look at the, the spot on the, the ground and think it's a conspiracy. They can, can see the picture slightly moved in their house and they think it's because somebody's been in there placing cameras and bugs. This, this idea that the lunatic has an hyper-awareness to things instead of a, a connection to reality is something which is so evident. People, so often, they, they lose their self-awareness, they lose their situational awareness, and all they have left is the ability to, to try to connect dots in the world around them. The madman is not the man who has lost his reason. The madman is the man who has lost everything except his reason. It's very easy for us to, to look at the people around us and think that they're just so disconnected from reality that there's no logic behind it. But even bad logic is still a form of logic. And even when people don't have a complete picture, they're, they're still trying to, to do something which is, is sort of a closed system. And the lunatic is often disconnected from truth and reality, but they're still observing the world and they're still basing their decisions and their, their assumptions off things that are actually out there in the world that they can actually see and they can sort of verify with their sight, although they may not be able to verify it intellectually or verify an understanding of it. So this is a, a very big problem we have in our world around us because it's something which is so enormously difficult to defeat. When people have become so deprived of, of critical thinking, when they've lost virtue so greatly that they've bought completely into a deterministic mindset instead of a mindset of, of personal responsibility and a mindset of free will, we get some very terrible things going on. Chesterton describes the reason of a healthy person and a madman as both being complete circles. It's just that one circle is much larger or smaller than the other. Yeah. One is a much narrower universe. Just like the, the madman who sees the, the different things in reality as a conspiracy, just like the, the people who look around and they see oppression everywhere, they are seeing reality, but they're seeing such a smaller, it's a very closed and narrow universe. It's not near as large as the world is. It's not... It's not taking in all the variables at play. It's not realizing that some things are just arbitrary. It's not taking in the way that things are, are naturally fall in the world. It's not taking in the human element. It's not taking in the, the very notion of free will and responsibility, which doesn't always mean that people choose well. It does mean that people sometimes choose badly. So how does all of this relate? Because if we're going to be discussing free will and we want to live in a small universe, then all we do is we just embrace sophistry. But if we want to live in a very complex universe, we want to have freedom, we want to have true liberty which elevates us beyond the world around us, beyond the, the groups which we are born into, then we must be people who see past sophistry, we must be people who see past intellectual dishonesty. We can't be the madman who sees too many patterns, but we have to see people as, as individuals, we have to see the proper amount of patterns, we have to be balanced in the way that we view the world, we have to be critical thinkers. And if we are to overcome the suffering in the world around us, we can't just attribute suffering to some fantasy out there. We can't just let suffering be a fantasy. If we are to truly overcome suffering, we must bring it into reality. We must step into reality. We must step into the, to the confines of truth. If we, we write the bill of oppression in the terms of fantasy, then when the check 
is, is come to be collected, it must be collected on those terms. But if we want to actually work through suffering in our world, then we have to write it on the terms of reality. We have to write it in the terms of truth. And we have to dive deep into truth and get out of the world of fantasy if we want to truly overcome problems in our world. Alright, so our conclusion today is going to be the idea of how we conquer suffering. And if we're going to overcome suffering in our life, if we're at a point where we do have suffering, we have to take responsibility in it. Even if we're not the type of person who, who starts the suffering, we still must embrace it. We must not embrace it as, as meaning wallow in it or just bathe in it, but we have to be the people who say we're going to own up this situation, we're going to work through it, we're going to conquer it, we're going to leave it in the dust. Life brings sufferings. It's like a gas. It's going to fill and consume us, but we have to get beyond it. Sometimes we create suffering. Sometimes it's placed on it. Sometimes people do it with evil intent. Sometimes it's just tragedy. Responsibility does not mean claiming guilt. It just means you are accepting the task to deal with it. However, there are times that people are guilty, and they need to own that. In other times, people have received suffering and need to overcome it. Either way, working through suffering is needed for justice and liberty. All right, last thing. And we've got a picture of Father Brown we can bring up for you. Father Brown is G.K. Chesterton's, his, his fictional Catholic priest, though you can see a lot of Chesterton bleeding into the character of, of Father Brown. Father Brown is always concerned with righteousness and justice. If you go to the ancient world, if you go to the Greek language, you go to the language of the New Testament, the concept of justice and righteousness, they are the same word. And what this word simply means is there's different stuff in reality, and sometimes the stuff gets out of order. But justice and righteousness is when the stuff in reality, the different variables in reality, are placed in their best position with one another possible. People are in their best possible relationships, may not be the relationships they were in before, but they're in their best possible relationship with one another. Father Brown understands that in order for there to be true justice, that both the victims and the villains must take personal responsibility for the suffering in their world. Justice can never happen if the, the victim lets the, the suffering be a fantasy. It can never be worked through if it stays in the world of fantasy. The villain can never truly be brought to justice unless they own the suffering they have caused. Father Brown is always much more interested in, in having a confession out of people. And again, it's, it's true, it looks like the, the medium of Catholicism, but it's much more than that. It's the idea of this is how we get liberty. This is how we get justice. And we can't do this without self-awareness. We have to look at ourselves Sometimes we're suffering. Sometimes we're not overwrought with suffering. We have to look at the world around us and see who we really are. People in our world are going to use fancy language to try to convince us that we're suffering because of other people. They're going to try to convince us that we're guilty because of things that we haven't personally done. All of these things are, are just illogical. They're not rooted in truth. They're rooted in sophistry, and that's a bad thing to do. The way we defeat sophistry, be self-aware. Take responsibility for the suffering in our life and take personal responsibility for engaging truth, and we need to take personal responsibility for administering truth in our world around us. And with that, I hope you enjoyed our program this evening. If you would like to support us, please subscribe to our, our channel. You can find us on, on YouTube, Facebook, a lot of other places on the, the podcast. Please just share our channel with others. And on that note, have a blessed day.